This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, I have a friend of mine, Jonathan Miller of Miller Matrix is his blog and Miller Samuel is his shop. Jonathan has been an observer of the real estate market and industry for for decades, literally decades. Uh, We met some years ago. I'm trying to remember if the first thing we did was a conference. We were on a panel with, of all people, Bob Schiller and Dottie Herman, who I believe was the head of Prudential Real Estate at the time. And it was 07 or 08. And, you know, she was the only one who was remotely bullish on the panel. It was Miller, Schiller, and me. And it was like bear, bearer, and bearest. It was it was pretty amusing. We've been friendly for, for quite a while. Um, I find him to be really a unique set of insights into what's going on in the real estate market. What his firm does is gather data from around the country, very often in areas where there are no other form of, of data collection going on, specific data far beyond what we see from the National Association of Realtors or what uh, what the Commerce Department puts out about new houses, and he crunches the numbers and comes up with some really, really uh, interesting perspectives. If you go to a real estate agency somewhere and they give you a tear sheet that shows you lots and lots of information about recent sales and length of time on the market and all that sort of stuff, his firm is the firm that actually collects that data, analyzes it, interprets it, and puts it out. He's got deals with a number of different companies. Really a fascinating approach to uh, taking data and repurposing it in a way that's useful for consumers. Uh, I find him to be very, very insightful about all things real estate. He also has a column now. He puts uh, something out once or twice a week on Bloomberg View in, in addition to what he does for his uh, daily blog at uh, Miller Matrix. Uh, just an all-around nice guy and tremendously knowledgeable and insightful. The most fascinating thing, uh, and I hope this came across in the interview, is he often gets tagged as an expert in divorce settlements and litigation and all sorts of crazy stuff. And he's, I am not exaggerating when I say he's pretty much been in every single penthouse in New York City. Like He's the go-to guy to appraise these 50 and $100 million properties. Not a lot of people with a, a deep expertise in that. And he could tell stories and actually has, and we touch upon it, about some of these apartments that are just unbelievable, just unbleeping believable. It's, it's fascinating. And he tells um, all sorts of fascinating tales about where he's been, what he's seen, how stuff gets priced. Is there really a difference between forty-five and forty-eight million dollars? Turns out, an extra bathroom here and a little bigger window there worth three million dollars. It's really quite interesting. If you are at all interested in real estate, and I am, and I assume many of you are, I suspect you'll find this conversation to be engrossing. Without any further ado, my conversation with Jonathan Miller. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Today, I'm actually thrilled to have an old friend in the studio. You may not have heard him 
directly, but you've probably read a quote of his in the New York Times or anywhere else somebody is talking about real estate. Today I have Jonathan Miller, founder and CEO of Miller Samuel. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. And I have to say, Barry, you have a great voice for radio. I have a face for radio is what you're really trying to say. (laughs) So for those of you who really don't know who Jonathan is, he's fairly legendary in the world of real estate. I think that's a fair statement, right? Well, at least in my own mind. In your own legend in his own mind. If you're in New York real estate or if you... So let me back up and give your CV a little bit. Okay. So you started out in this industry as a agent and then an appraiser. I've been a real estate appraiser since the mid 80s. All right. And and what kind of set you apart, I want to talk about three things so people know who you are. First, you were one of the first guys in the real estate world, and this sounds insane because you would have thought this was going on for decades, who said, hey, all these transactions are generating a lot of data. Why don't we take this data and take a closer look at it and see if we can discern any sort of meaning from how long a home is on the market for, what it sells relative to its asking price, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No one was really doing this before you came along. Uh, not really. Uh, most of what was being done was uh, marketing brochure. Right, nonsense. Uh, or uh, very complicated in the sense that it was sort of academia. Right. And it was hard for the consumer to digest. Uh, as journalists say, the trend, uh, three data points make a trend. And then I like to say the trend is your friend. Right. Except until, for that bend at the end. Until it ends. Right. right. The, the bend, bend at, at the, the end. end. I like that. That's even better. So that that's my contribution to... Uh, you know it's true if it rhymes, right? That's right, absolutely. Rhymes. So the second so so assembling the data was the first thing you did and then miraculously you were an objective commentator observer. You know, I used to mock relentlessly the National Association of Realtors. Uh, David LaRay, the chief uh, economist, right? The, it was painful. Uh, just just everything out of their mouths were just horrific marketing spin. Well, you have this dilemma. So in real estate transactions, you have this you have this if you look at the broad view, you've got at one end of the spectrum, you've got uh, the real estate community. It's always a good time to buy or sell. That or was sell. Literally, right. that was literally an ad they put out in the midst of the housing collapse. It's always a great time to buy or sell a house. Right. What that really means is it's always a great time to generate a commission-based transaction. <laughs> right. And P.S. My mother was a real estate agent. This was. Right. Dinner conversation. So I'm not bashing real estate agents. Oh no! As an outsider, I, this was literally what I grew up with. Right. So when I mock these people, it's from the inside, not the outside. Right. Absolutely. And and then the other end of the spectrum is the academics. You know the the Case Shiller Index mm-hmm. and 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 all the problems of that and what the purpose of it is, and uh, and we've really positioned ourselves somewhere in the middle, which is essentially in the trenches providing. Uh, sort of on the ground uh, observations about the market. And one of the things that I found really fascinating uh, being an appraiser was uh, during the whole big sort of housing boom run up credit bubble uh, back uh, starting circa, I started seeing it in 0304. no one else was talking about it. And I thought it was really bizarre. It was you a felt bizarre- like you were out in, in left field. And in fact, to, to emphasize your data slicing skills, so first, the data runs that you put together 
Actually, it's a feed into Bloomberg. So if you're on yes. the terminal, yes. I don't know what it's called on the terminal. Yeah, we have a, a Manhattan luxury price index. There's three different me, uh, metrics that are used. We also have a luxury rental price mm-hmm. index. And uh, and I've also seen your specific regional housing data. Yeah. Here's Nassau County. Here's parts of Florida. Right. We Miami, cover 18 different markets. So we cover we cover a, a whole bunch of markets in New York City Metro, four markets in uh, South Florida, and then um, I'm now starting to develop research in Los Angeles. So right. it, it's amazing because- I'd love the, to see the San Francisco yeah, area yeah, also. The, that would be- uh, I, I was approached about that, but, I, but nothing has come to it yet. But what's amazing about it is the concepts of supply and demand- they don't change all that much. I mean, the numbers change. How many zeros right. are after it? I'm amazed what you get in L.A. for a couple of million dollars versus what you get in New York. Right. Well, you always you see, get a lot of house in there. You always see the celebrity, you know, a Johnny Depp or whoever. It's like, oh, they sold their palatial estate for three and a half million dollars, and I'm thinking, that's a, well, that's a large two bedroom right, in Manhattan. Right. right. It's right. not a big that is deal. not a prestige. Uh, play. Speaking of which, I said there are three things. The third thing, which is we'll get to, you've been in pretty much every penthouse in Manhattan. Is that an, much of an overstatement? I have one of the most of uh, the greatest experiences seeing these insane penthouses. Uh, the the fully designs decorated, I mean, fully. However, mm-hmm. what I don't usually get to see is them in the evening at night. It's always during the day, so I don't get to see them with all the lights on That's in a shame. the city, which is you know half of the spectacular spectacular aspect of right. the view. Uh, but we see, and you know that in itself is a whole different sub market of the housing market. Uh, you're seeing which that, has held up really well, which has held up really yeah, well because the money is almost an afterthought. It's irrelevant, right? Yeah, hey, I'm going to buy this because I can, and I don't care. Well, the whole uh, just to digress to the whole phenomenon of this high end uh, uh, aspect is it's a global phenomenon. It's not mm-hmm. just Unique to it's New York. London, it's Hong Kong, it's Shanghai, it's right. it's you know Sydney, going to any major city. Right. It's it's booming because there's a boatload of money. We're talking real estate with Jonathan Miller, CEO and founder of Miller Samuel. Let's hold off on discussing the penthouses just for a few seconds. I want to talk for a moment. I want to pick your brains for a moment about what it is that drives most of real estate. We we put together. So we were talking about this. We were putting together a list, and it was everything from demographics and household formation to interest rate to wages. But really, all of this comes back down to credit, doesn't it? It really does. And, and that's actually one of the key components. If you look at the bulk of the housing market right now, it's really defined by access to credit. Uh, if you look at you know, I always like to say housing is local and credit is national. That's right. And and so literally, you know, post Lehman, uh, credit crunch, uh, every market started behaving the same way. We had things like rents rising because uh-huh. people were tipped back into the rental market because they couldn't qualify. We also had inventory begin to fall to record lows nearly universally across all housing markets because a homeowner with uh, lower negative equity, which is roughly about 40% of all uh, homeowners with a mortgage, uh, don't qualify for that next purchase, either a trade-up, a lateral move, or a downsize. So what do they do? They sit. And they don't they don't enter the market organically the way they normally would bring their house to the market. And then people that don't have a credit condition are saying, well, 
I'm not, I can't find the house I want, so I'm not going to list my house. And it, you sort of double down on the problem. And right. only the only way out of that are is twofold. One is housing prices rise, which naturally occurs because- As a function of tight supply, right, right. not necessarily strong demand. Correct. And, 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 or strong fundamentals either. It, it literally is, a f- you constrain the supply, prices rise. And that's mm-hmm. been my biggest criticism of the pronouncement of a U.S. housing recovery as early as, uh, you know, two years ago, uh, because it, the fundamentals in terms, you know, incomes generally stagnant in the U.S., unemployment, even though the numbers on the top level look good, it's still not good. And credit is about as tight, at least for residential mortgages, as it was in the days following Lehman. So so I never thought in my career that I would be saying that tight lending conditions are making housing prices rise. But they are. But it, they really it, are. It's, it's a combination of tight lending conditions following a boom and bust in real estate, because you end up with a lot of people who don't have any look under normal circumstances you're in a house for 7 years right. even if you have tight credit conditions you should have some equity in the house right but if you bought at the peak before a 35% correction if you put little or no money down there is no equity there and that locks you into that house unless you're just going to walk away and if you do that good luck qualifying for a new right. house right and i think that you know the 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 narrative about housing right now is this idea that, you know, is the housing recovery losing steam? You know, are we seeing, you know, projections for housing price increases are going to be less this year than they were last year? Well, last year was based on artificial conditions. I'm going to see 2013 from the context of the U.S. housing market as as really a uh, an anomaly. In, in other words, in 2010, 10, 11, 12, we had this pent-up demand, the election cycle, the build-up to the fiscal cliff. The world apparently didn't end after the fiscal cliff expired. And there was all of a sudden a a concern about rising interest rates because the economy was going to get better. And you had all the fence sitters moving out of them, out of their the tax change as well, was and another the, the tax change was certainly well on the high end of the market, especially. And you had people rush in, and you still had the low inventory issue. issue. So, that's so you had prices, prices rise. Now we're you know we're doing these year over year comparisons, and activity or prices, if they're not above last year, it's somehow a failure or a sign of weakness. When I contend, it's the wrong comparison to make. It absolutely is. We're discussing real estate in America with Jonathan Miller. So now let's talk a little bit about the high end. We understand what's constraining everybody's houses, the the normal I don't even know what to call it. The median house is about 207,000. Right, it's right exactly. Somewhere around Med- that. And you know, obviously it's really regional 207,000 in the New York metro area doesn't get you a lot. One of the people in my it office It gets you a closet in a hallway that you're going to buy from the co-op to combine with your apartment. The one of the people in my office transferred here from Syracuse, they sold a house for $107,000 and I'm like what is a hundred? I don't understand. You look at a picture of it. Right. It looks like a regular little, you know, a starter house, a ranch, but it would go for three and change here. So uh, when we talk about normal housing, what what is the story? What should we expect in the near future from this housing market? Has the death of housing been exaggerated? Yes, absolutely. I, I think all it is is a reset from uh, the euphoria that we had last year, which was based on nothing, I like to say. It really was based on this 
uh, horrible skew created by uh, by tight credit. The, we're already seeing a, a spread or a widening in general between the high higher end of the market and the balance of the market. Uh, in the context of the credit conversation we're just having, because it's a cash transaction, it, it's it, so as you move up in price, there's a higher probability of either a more cash paid or just all cash outright. You also have the 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 preference by foreign or international buyers towards the high end. They're global investors, mm-hmm. uh, urban markets along the eastern seaboard on the west coast, very. Similar That's phenomenon. LA, San Francisco, Seattle, Vancouver. Right, we count, even up into Canada. Absolutely, very similar and and that's that's a key driver. But other is that we're seeing a disparity between conforming mortgages through the former GSEs versus jumbo, right? Mm-hmm. That that banks like jumbo mortgages, they make money on them. They they want to so the business decision Wells is, Fargo is what in the they like own the jumbo mortgage market. Don't right, they? right. They're 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 a huge lion share of the market nationally. But but any lender right now is looking to do jumbo deals because they make a, a favorable return on it, and in, and and the 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 alternative, the the GSC related transactions, which is ninety percent of the mortgage market, right. is still burdened by, in many ways, the credit outlook within that realm is very backward looking it's looking at the transgressions the conservative element is from the uh you know the, the transgressions that were made several years ago the department of justice going after banks for bad lending practices all those sorts of things so it's very backward looking whereas i think the jumbo finance arena is very much more current looking today we're discussing real estate and housing with jonathan miller Earlier, we were talking about uh, the difference regionally. How have these recoveries differed? I know South Florida is different than Arizona, is different than Las Vegas, is different than Southern California, which is obviously different than Silicon Valley and Northern California. How do these different regions compare? And what does that mean for someone, let's say, living in New York or Washington, D.C.? Well- when you look at uh, you look at a lot of the ho- the national housing metrics and you look at the comparison by city and you'll see generally what you see is markets that were hit very hard probably the hardest were the markets in the what FDIC calls the sand states the Las Vegases of the world essentially where there was tremendous amount of speculation carpenters and nurses quitting their jobs and becoming real estate speculators <laughs> and and so they fell much harder and farther. And you know the, what I like the way I like to describe it is when you go from a dollar to two dollars, it's a hundred percent increase. So the metrics in terms of showing their increase made them look like wow, they're really recovering much more quickly than other markets like New York, for example, that didn't have the speculation right. that you saw in these markets. So it's really uh, almost an apples and orange comparison. Uh, what you're seeing now is the markets that are seeing rapid saw rapid price growth. Growth. Some of them, like a Las Vegas, the rates are cooling rapidly because they've they've essentially recovered a lot of the uh, almost overcorrection that had occurred right. in those markets. And this is a lot of low hanging fruit. A lot of low hanging fruit. Whereas markets where the economy's very fundamentally very strong, they didn't have a lot of speculation. Uh, you had allu- you had talked about it in an earlier segment about uh, you know someone from upstate New York and how much they got. Right. There market there are markets in the country that didn't 
experience the same boom and bust neither cycle. The up, neither the so they're not going to rise from the the ashes because they didn't really fall to the right. ashes. Right. You know? so, so I think the rule number one is there is no national housing market uh in the in the the way that it's presented to us every month with all the reports all the data and right. and secondly i, I to, re- to by the way to be fair to case schiller they do release their 20 and 40 metro region housing prices and then they jumble them all together in right a have a index. 20 city index right so when you look at the individual index you could still see and there are a number of people who then take the case schiller data and slice and dice it nicely and you could see a couple of weeks ago, I ran two different charts. I forgot who I stole them from. One showed the percentage recovery off the lows and how far they still have to go to get to the highs. And they were like Las Vegas was in both. They were crazy. Wow, we're up 80% off our lows, but we're still 97%. But, but crazy remember, numbers. But, but remember, the high point that was reached was complete fabrication. Right. It Nonsense. Was, it was based on nothing. Gossamer. Right. It was based on- They were building these exurbs in Las Vegas, these big McMansions that was a two and a half hour drive from any urban center, any job center. So how are you going to support these homes if it takes you, whatever, four hours round trip? Because what was driving the the demand was- lenders were just looking to lend that was how they made That's money right. they'd package up the mortgages and sell them off to the you know offload the risk to somebody else we're not in that world anymore That's right the the shift in credit and I've written about this over the years went from the borrower's ability to service the loan to the lender's ability to sell the loan to a securitizer. Right. Once that shifted and the borrower's ability to service it no longer mattered hey it was just a matter of time before it collapsed Right. So so now we talked before briefly about other regions. Texas is an unusual region. I don't think a lot of people realize why Texas avoided the boom and bust. There was a change in their constitution, I think it was like a century ago, where they are not allowed to do cash, cash out. out. Re- no cash out refinances. Right. right. It's against their state constitution. So everybody maintaining their falling income, replacing it with- HELOCs and and borrowing. just financing their their day to day. When you run low on money, you just borrow more because housing hey, prices there. always go up. They always go up. Right? The other the other quirk in Texas is uh, the idea that the transactions aren't public re- publicly recorded. So so any any studies that are done come out of the realtors, which is really a subset of the public record to begin with. So it's not a full data set. So you could almost argue too that ignorance is bliss, Right. that that the market wasn't fully informed of- So if I use a Zillow app and show me what's sold nearby in Texas, I'm not going to see the same thing that I see anywhere in- in... Listen, I'm- Not necessarily because the information isn't, it's a non-disclosure state. So, huh. are there many non-disclosures? Uh, I don't know offhand. I, I want to say there's uh, about a dozen. Okay. Today, I'm speaking with my friend Jonathan Miller of Miller Samuel. He is an expert on real estate appraisal, transactions, home values, etc. He has crunches crunched a lot of data over the past few decades about what drives housing. And and one of the things we really haven't talked about much, but I want to discuss is the international component about this, the international buyers coming here to North America, buying up real estate, and the booming real estate markets we see 
in big cities overseas. So where do we want to start with that? Well, we'll start with the basic driver of it is uh, I'd like to say that uh, global real estate or specifically luxury real estate, high-end real estate in the in in the context of world a worldwide context is the world's new currency. In other words, you don't you, need Bitcoin, you just need a really nice apartment <laughs> right, in exactly. New York and London for a nice, you know, 80-90 million dollar price tag. So what you're seeing is you're seeing across and this has really been a phenomenon that's ex- virtually exploded in the last 3 to 4 years is you have you have a lot of concern uh, with wealthy investors in terms of exposure to higher taxation as governments grapple with uh, uh, weak, weakening or uh, challenging economic conditions, political turno- turnover. So you look at Europe, for example. Uh, France trem- is a perfect example. F- tremendous, you know, pressure uh, for you know short- government shortfalls. Where do we get the money from? Limits on compensation for securities industry. All sorts of things. Uh, and then just on top of that, a higher regulatory overlay for you know many of the wealthy that have their own businesses. You start looking around the world for maybe other places to diversify your your uh, your wor- your net worth, and one of them it could be pork bellies, but it one of them is real estate, and mm-hmm. and real estate, ironically, New York is very favorable in the international environment since we're sort of the starting place for a lot of the what's wrong with the world right now in terms of credit problems. Um, so cash is king here. Cash York. is king. And not only that, but it's really a, I think the, the terminology here is this global safe haven that mm-hmm. what you're looking for is people, I'd like to say that we're building the world's most expensive bank safety deposit boxes where you, <laughs> where you put your valuables in it, like your artwork and whatever else, and then you rarely go back. And there's a lot of that going on here. You've you've been in a number of those apartments. Oh, absolutely. You? And and uh, I don't know what mistake I made in my career path, but <laughs> but I'm not going to own one of those. Uh, at least uh, is in, that necessarily a mistake? You you have a very lovely home in Connecticut, and it's it's certainly not a hundred thousand dollar ranch. It's it's a little bit nicer than that. Right. And so most of us, most of us are not going to be in a 50 or 100 million dollar penthouse. In right. fact, 99.9% of us are right. not going to be. And what you're telling us is even the 0.01% who can be in it, they're not even there. They're not that's they're wasted not using, views, aren't they? It really is. And the way you have to look at it, what I find almost humorous about the topic is when you'll see, for example, in London, there have been three transactions over two hundred million. That's amazing. In the U.S., the three highest transactions there was one for one hundred forty-seven million. In the Hamptons, in the Hamptons, there was another one in Connecticut for one hundred twenty million, and then there was another one in California for around a hundred million. And you throw those all together, and it's not even a billion dollars. It doesn't have anything to do with the balance of the market. It is more like a circus sideshow. Right. It's an anomaly. It has right. nothing to do but but what it what I think the real estate industry sees it as, and you know, perhaps there's some truth to it. It's like, well, if someone's willing to invest ninety million dollars in a condo that they're rarely going to use, that means they're very confident about the New York real estate market and they'll they're you know, it's a good sign for everybody else. Maybe that's true. I can't Maybe they have ninety million dollars, then they don't know what the hell else to do. Well, that's... I think that's really what it is. <laughs> and then what you're seeing is you're seeing the other phenomenon you're seeing that's 
tied into this. Look at the regions. I talked about Europe. You also have China. You have uh, the wealthy Chinese trying to extract their money out. You know, there's a housing Get bubble there. Get it out of right. China. Right, to diversify around the can. globe, right? Australia's undergoing it's a, a li- siege I always, of Chinese investors right now. Sydney and Vancouver, I've always thought of as life rafts for the wealthy Chinese Absolutely. who are concerned one day they have to hit the eject button and get the hell out of Dodge. And, and you have that in uh, in South America. The Brazilians have single-handedly bailed out the Miami housing market, which was a highly speculative market with 10 years of shadow inventory, inventory that was essentially just Dead. built and can't be sold. And it's all been gobbled up. There's really none there of that There were like 100,000 condos. It was a 10-year absorption rate. It would take to you know conservatively to absorb and and it was done in three years and it was primarily because of brazilians and venezuelans with the wealthy venezuelans with the regime change right we're looking to get out and so you see those phenomenons but they have nothing to do with anything the else. average american home buyer so if, if someone is looking to pick up a vacation property in miami not that i am but if you were has that window closed? Did you miss the bargain opportunity? We're still seeing a fairly brisk appreciation rate. So there, I'm sure there's, you know, it depends, you know, every mar- every neighborhood, every market's a little bit different. Uh, what's interesting, and this is brings back to the credit discussion. If you look at Miami, which is a market that I, I prepare research for, about three quarters of all the distressed condo sales are cash. Cash only. Right? Right. I knew you were going to go that way. About th- that's amazing, seventy five percent. Well, it compare gets, that to what the rest of the country is normally like. What, right, right. Well, thirty percent. Right, it's about like a th- right exactly seventy thirty. If you look at the non distress, meaning anything that's not a foreclosure or a short sale condo market, Miami, the cash buyers in that market account for about. 75 percent as much as distress more than there's there's almost no difference there that's the variation it varies every quarter but the variation is two three four percent it's really not a big difference which means that it is a cash market it remains a cash market so guess what kind of new development projects are being built in miami luxury appealing to international high-end yep uh a tremendous linkage with New York City. It's about the same time to, to fly to Miami as it is to dr- take a car to the Hamptons, or not mm-hmm. quite the same, but that's sort of the three hours. It's sure. seen as a competing uh, element to it, um, especially markets like Palm Beach, which are almost all New Yorkers, uh, very high right. end, very little foreign, uh, whereas huh, Miami is almost all foreign. So the cash. You can see, for different reasons, the cash element of real estate really, or the access to credit really defines how markets behave. That That's quite fascinating. So we, we see foreigners coming to the U.S. and buying real estate. Is that what's driving things in, in London and... Sydney and where where else is it's real exactly the same like phenomenon. So you're so in almost every major how urban market in the in the world, you're seeing record prices. Uh, incidentally, the high end market in London is about forty percent more expensive than the high end market wow. in Manhattan. That's amazing. Uh, so we're actually, why is that? Is at, it just a matter of not that much more space there? We're more no, vertical I th- city, or I I, th- I think it's. Uh, I think there is less space there. I think that's part of it. Also, there's a closer proximity to the Middle East, mm-hmm. uh, to Russia, 
who, while they're touted here as big players in the real estate market here because they buy high profile, they're not even the top 20 for tourism. It's That's completely overhyped. Uh, the, 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 the foreigners that are very active in the New York market uh, and on the East Coast tend to be from Europe and, and uh, the, the Chinese or you know, the, Asia in general is uh, probably the fastest growing uh, contributors to the market. There, there was just an article, you mentioned Middle Eastern money boosting real estate prices. It was just an article on Bloomberg uh, today that talked about how the Dubai International Airport just passed Heathrow as the biggest international airport in the world. Right. That that's just unbelievable. Dubai sees more traffic than London. And that market is largely driven by speculation. You know mm-hmm. that it's it's uh not in the context of the uh, the Flip flipping this house, that, yeah. right? It's more of a long term equity play. I think a lot of real estate investment right now around is that speculation. Then, if it's a it, long term, it is speculation, but not in terms of. I think th- I think the way I discern from investment versus speculation is the the time frame, the window. So, mm-hmm. for example, the time frame in the last housing boom that got us got the real estate market into trouble the time frame was weeks months quarters the time frame now is five ten years that, it's a much longer window that's really which is, an investment isn't it it is an investment and that's really what real estate has always been we just lost our minds as a <laughs> as a housing market uh during the last cycle that that's quite, quite it's called a systemic breakdown I'm speaking with Jonathan Miller of Miller Samuel, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. There's a wall of quotes in your office when I walk in. Like I have five things framed. <laughs> I walk in, you have like a, a, a hallway with like 97 Well, it was cheaper than artwork. I guess it is. So we're talking about real estate and you and I know each other for a long time. There's a couple of things I wanted to share with you that sure. we haven't caught up. So, you know, our house has been on the market right. for two weeks before we were yeah. sold. So someone said to me, wait, you sold your house in two weeks? Really like seven to 10 days, but we had to wait for the contract to come right. back. So someone said, how did you price your house? And we had gotten a, a huge, this is like a middle class split level, 500 and change, new Long Island suburban right. bedroom townhouse, not a big mansion. Nice not kitchen a, though. A beautiful kitchen. I love our granite. I actually haven't had an affair with our granite. That's that's a whole nother story. Is this story. suitable for radio? It is. It is. I just fell in love with this granite, and it haunted me for days. Right. And every other piece of granite just didn't do it. I know that sounds ridiculous. People don't think of me as a person in a kitchen stroking. Like, this is a nice piece of mica. Right. But this is... It's not my granite. I have to say, it is a spectacular. It kitchen. is a. I, I can. So the that's another story. I could share the granite. So before I tell you how we sold the house, the granite story was we finally. So we we ended up in a house by accident. It's one of these stories. We had a buy, and then we went and sold our house, and then we went back to our buy where we had an agreed deal, right. but we weren't in contract yet, and the seller had said to us. We decided we want 25000 more. And basically it was like, well, wait, you told us we had to do this really quickly. So we cut our price significant. We cut our price fifty grand. That house also, first weekend, sold. Sold. And that was in the midst of the frenzy, so it was relatively easy to do. 
say, hey, if you want the 25 more, that's fine. But then you get full price or you get fast. You don't get both. So if you want, I'll go break this deal and only cut the price 25 grand and you could wait six months and we could do it at this price. But you don't get both. And what was the response? Um, well, we won 25 more. By the way, the side note about that is they had $50,000 deposit on a house that their six month in their contract to close elapsed. And in order to not lose the 50, they had to come up with another 50, which is why they were pressuring us for the 25. We walked away from that. Two years later, they got their extra 25, <laughs> but they lost 100 to get it. And I remember saying to the agent, look, I know I have a facility of numbers, but you don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that 100 is a bigger number than 25. So uh, that sort of stupidity is well, rife in and, real and, estate. And here's the thing, and you made the comment, you know, we sold our house in seven to 10 days, right? So what you're seeing now in the market in general in many housing markets is when a seller who feels very empowered because there's not a lot of supply right. out there, so they don't have a lot of competition, the notion that you sell in seven to 10 days means to many sellers that the broker priced it too low or the seller priced it too low, they gave it away. When the That's wrong. But, but, but that is wrong. You're absolutely right. But that is, that is a, an assumption because it's sold quickly. And I contend in this market, it's either priced correctly or it's not in the market. Oh, it's incorrectly, right? Right. You it's, see, it's, these it's, houses it's, up for three. It's, it's I love not a Zillow. dimmer. It's not a dimmer switch. Right. It's a, it's a it's an it's an on off switch. So so here's what I did to in order to price the house and understand. We found a house that we fell in love with, and I'll spare the grisly details. But it's a divorce and it's a little complex and it's it's a nicer house on a bigger piece of land in a nicer town right next to this big preserve. So I'm paying a couple of bucks more for the set. But that house was on the market. We haggled over the price when we finally, they priced it too high. It had been on the market for almost, I think, 300 days. We're a live one. Oh, look, we got someone interested. It's a contemporary house. You have to either like that or not. So I know it's kind of a little bit of a niche. Right. And it's an it's an odd price. It's not one of these big multi-million dollar houses but it's not a $500,000 house. And so uh, it was a weird house. And so our concern was, hey, we don't want to lose the house we want to buy. So we're not going to give our house away, but we're not going to try and squeeze. Right. Sometimes getting every last penny is expensive. Right. So here's what I did. I, w I love the Zillow app. We've talked about yes. this. We've both been on our boats in the Long Island Sound <laughs> using the nearby button on the Zillow app to right. look at all the prices of the houses that are either for sale or sold that are waterfront and it's mind boggling. Right. When I've been when I've been in the harbor by Port Washington looking at Kings Point, these houses are fourteen and sixteen million dollars. Right. Like the the co ops and condos that are hundred million that that's made up. Those are just that's just not real. But an eight, ten, twelve million dollar house that's like a real number because there are three, four, five million dollar houses. Right. So I used that Zillow app and I said, show me every house that sold in my town with this many bedrooms, three bedrooms, two baths, this this much, you know, and, and then I looked at them and I said, everything that sold at 
or above my price point. You know, I was looking for the price where everything was either much bigger or nicer or waterfront or some something that made it special and where that line was. And then I looked at everything that was sold and it was either not as nice as our house. You know, we sure. gutted the whole house and completely right. read. There's nothing. You know what has to be replaced? The garage door. That was the, we ordered one. It never showed up. Never paid for it. That's literally the only thing that we didn't turn over in the past seven years. And, and, what, so, you, and what you're describing is you're describing the aggregation of real estate information yes. right to the consumer. And, and so it's very different now. What's interesting, when I was talking before about the buyer saying, uh, or rather the seller saying, oh, I sold it, I priced it too low because it sold too quickly. Uh, what I also have seen through, you know, decades of looking at transactions and appraising is that if you overprice, you'll ultimately end up with selling your home for a lower price than if you had priced it very close to the market. Because it gets stale. It, it gets stale. On the That's a reality of it. And I think a lot of sellers don't get that. And they- The agents lose interest. It's just, you see it on what they're- That's a nice house, but what's wrong well, with think, it? Well, think of, you know, a lot of people, you know, on one hand, we're, we have all this great transparency, but on the other hand, you're conveying a disconnect with the market. You're saying- uh, I don't know what's going on. This is what I want. So the buyer's thinking, well, this person is going to be really difficult to deal with. They're disconnected. Right. There's something right. wrong with the house that we don't know about. There's it just it's all kinds of red flags, and that slows down the the market in terms of the interest of your of your home. And I see this over and over and over again. It's quite amazing. So so when I looked at the run of Zillow data, I said when I put my house up for sale. There is not going to be a nicer house at this price point. In right. fact, everything else, plus or minus ten or twenty thousand dollars, is not going to be as nice because I'm trying to look at it as a buyer. Right. Hey, if I'm trying to between choose between this house for five ninety nine and that house right. for five ninety nine, I'm going to go with the nicer house. And I also saw what sold within that price point. I I have a feeling that six hundred is a tough number. To get over because if you're a conforming mortgage, right, you're, you're straddling it. Six twenty-five-five is right. the threshold. It, it's really tough in our to, market. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's really tough to to sell something much above that. So, uh, could we have listed it at six forty-nine and and maybe squeezed another twenty thirty thousand? Maybe right, but then we but were, then you lose the house that you're trying to buy, and, and that's the whole point of this is we want that house. So, uh, you know, there, it's I, called juggling, really. When when I started as a trader early in my career, I remember one of the head traders once said to me, I was, I was trying to squeeze like the last couple of eighths. This is back in the days of fractions out of a trade. And he's like, look, you could get out of this transaction a quarter point lower. Just hit the bid and move on. But 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 I could squeeze a few more eighths out of this. He goes, hey, I remember this old guy said to me, hey. Leave a little something for the next guy. <laughs> and can I tell you something? It's good advice. If you're sure. spending all this time and effort and energy to squeeze every last dime, you, there are a lot of non-monetary factors that go into the transaction, how smooth it is, how easy the people we're dealing with. It's a, it's, he works at a, a finance company in New York. He's being transferred from elsewhere. They've been so far more or less a pleasure to deal sure. with. And I can't help but wonder if I'm beating people up for that last ten or twenty thousand dollars, how much mental anguish 
is that going to generate? Right, because the whole the whole process is so emotional anyway. It's surprisingly emotional. It is, no matter what. And that, that was one of the problems during the last boom and bust cycle was people are trying to view housing as a you know a stock or you know, a commodity to but trade. It, but you know what? And, it, and that's part of it. But the bigger part is it, it also has a you know a, a use a usage that that place is to live part of what you pay for. And it's an emotional. I recall the conversations I had with people. In 06, 07, 08, I'm sure you went through oh. this, where you're at a barbecue or a cocktail party. Oh, that's and, all. That was the only conversation. And neighbors would, you know, neighbors would say to me, you know, I want to put my house up. And by the way, these numbers are real. That my house that I sold for five and change, people were selling for seven, eight, nine, which uh, never nine, but six, seven, almost eight. And I remember having a conversation saying, hey, the the guy would say to me, the Smiths sold their house. For seven fifty, why can't I get seven fifty? We have a better yard, a better location on the street, a nicer kitchen. Yeah, yeah but the Smiths sold their house two years ago. Right. It, that was two years. If you have a time machine, I promise you I could get you seven fifty. Right. If you don't have but I'm gonna tell you, I, I know people who still own Yahoo. It traded at almost two hundred and eighty dollars. <laughs> right. It's thirty bucks. <laughs> they can't get two eighty, you can't get seven fifty. Right. You have to recognize the more and then I would watch these people put houses up for sale, and they were always six months to a year behind the market. Well, so the market is at six hundred; they're at seven hundred. The market drops to five fifty. They're chasing it. They're chasing it, but like a, on a year lag. We had and we, never hitting the bid. We had a, a situation in Manhattan, uh, sort of the 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 tipping point of the market, and we were. The Manhattan market was about two years behind the national market. The national market peaked in the summer of 06. Uh, ours was with Lehman in September of 08. Mm -hmm. And uh, prices within the next three to four months fell on average about 30%. That much, really? It, so and essentially, New York was late to the party, but right. we caught up real quick. Right. And, and remember, most co-ops were requiring 30 or 40%. The cash. average co-op is 35% down. That, that's a so, lot of cash. So That's a nice buffer. So what we started to see is we started seeing people start to come out three or four months later to buy. And the broker feedback was, well, they're all low ballers. They're all offering about 30% below what it was six months ago. And my comment was, if the only people in the market are buying something for thirty, only willing to pay thirty percent less than what it was before the not that low event, is there? That is the new that's market. That's your bid, right? They're not lowballing. You're highballing the ass, and it, it's wrong. And it was fascinating because the real estate community in general was more negative than the consumer. Huh. And uh, and and it took them longer to sort of rebound because they were devastated because the whole principle of property going up forever uh, was shattered, essentially. But, you know, especially here in New York. So I graduated grad school in 89. And unlike many of my peers who immediately ran out and bought co-ops and condos, 87, the market crashed. First thing new Fed chair Greenspan did was cut rates. And you had a little boom in real estate in 88, 89. And then as rates kind of normalized, if you bought something in 89 or 90 in, in New York City, you did not get back to break even till, I want to say, 96, 97, something About 97, like right when the dot-com boom really started to, just started to kick in. And could... we were just discussing this in the office yesterday. 
I remember that was still early in my career. I was on a sell, sell side. I worked in a brokerage firm. And I recall hearing people say repeatedly, hey, I need 250 from my account. I need 180000 I'm trading up. I'm buying a vacation property. I'm buying waterfront. And back in the 90s, $200,000 was a huge move. And yes. To go from four hundred to six hundred was a big move in real estate. Absolutely. Now it's another bedroom and a little bigger yard. Right. But in the 90s, that was like $500,000 houses were really nice houses. Right. Now it's a split level, you know, in a, in a development. It's not a... Right. And, and what was what the conversation was during the 90s, especially the early 90s, uh, was, uh, I know the market stinks, but I want to buy a house. I'm going to be Gotta here live for somewhere. 20 years. Right. And, you know, we're going to be here. This is our home. And and so I, I think that's I think that's always the right approach. Uh, it has to be right for your situation. And I just was, I marveled at how we lost our way during this mm -hmm. last go round, you know, really well, you starting brought, you brought in 10 million people who previously did not qualify for mortgages. Right. That creates a huge, but it was more than clearly more than, than just that. Right. right. And so even, uh, you know, some people have pointed to 97, 98, as the start of housing becoming unhinged, I look at that as just getting back to where it was in 89 right. and a tremendous amount of stock market wealth. It was just diversification. There were people who turned a half a million dollars into five million or a hundred thousand into a million. Sure. The numbers were just stupid. And so in terms of how many zeros are on your IRA doesn't affect your lifestyle, but moving to a fill-in-the-blank, bigger, nicer, closer to certainly, the water. It certainly changes your attitude. It's a, it's a huge lifestyle change also. You're no longer in the middle-class suburb you were. You're now in a whatever, and people love those trade-ups, which, you know, we started talking about this during the break and I, I want during the broadcast, and I, I've written about this. I know if you've written about it. I think all these tales of this is the end of real estate as an American pastime, I think that's nonsense. Wherever I look, oh. I see people still in love with real estate. So when it, so here's the thing. When you, what, what I find after a change, a condition where the market's either going up or going down, pundits, observers, participants in the real estate market think linear. In other words, when housing prices are rising, they're going to rise forever. Right. When housing it's prices extrapolated are falling, ad infinitum. they're going to fall forever. When inventory is falling, it's going to fall forever. And there's Economists, no, there's no you, ebb and flow. Right. There's no, it's not, it's cyclical. It, it oscillates. It doesn't project out. Right. And and so I, I find that all the time. And then, you know, the, the whole thing, and you and I have talked about this, the whole thing about home ownership and how it's declined. Well, it it reached a point, uh, Fannie Mae and uh, Fannie Mae stated goal at one point on their website was 75% home ownership in the U.S. Which is, we got to 69 and change. Which is kind of ridiculous. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous. And we're up from, uh, you know, 69 was about 3 to 4% above what the 50-year norm, normalized right. level was. And so now we're falling below the... Um, you know, we certainly have been falling from the 69 level, and now we're sort of right in the middle of the the long term range, and it's continuing to fall. and And the pronouncement is, well, we're going to be a nation of renters, 
And no, and it's a kind of a ridiculous argument. It's as wrong to the downside as seventy five percent was to the upside. Correct. And and really, what it is is. Well, of course, homeownership is falling. Credit is historically the tightest it's been in the modern era. You have a weak economy. You have all these problems. That's why kids are living at home with their parents. Household formation is at a low low, level, right? right? It's it's not a lifestyle decision or a change. It's a it's an economic decision because things are still not that great. And and let me tell you by the time this airs my mortgage my house probably closed on my mortgage with Wells Fargo either happened or or didn't happen. Um but I've never experienced anything like the Wells Fargo jumbo investigation. Um I'm looking to see if I actually got an email from them right now. Uh that it's been pretty pretty astonishing the amount of detail that they've asked. They've well, asked. Well, did I uh, did I ever ever told you my uh, game show theory about banking no. with with lending? So think of it this way. This is this is the this is this is how to explain the irrational behavior that you, when you interact with a bank to get a mortgage. Right. Look at a bank as playing a game show and uh, let's make a deal, right? So door number 1 is borrow from the Fed for free. Grow other lines of business, rebuild your capital base, all those sorts of things, anything but mortgage lending. Door number two is lend to Joe and Mary Homebuyer for 30 years. Maybe one of them will lose their job. Maybe there's going to be a decline in their local housing market at some point. So they're there's there's risk more risk associated with it so right. they're trying to equalize the risk I mean, this is very simplistic but they try to equalize the risk between the two choices now that now joe and mary homebuyer more 30 year mortgage is never going to be the same risk level as uh, as as borrowing from the fed as a lender right right so so they're going to make them jump through hoops and i contend it's not triple a it's really quadruple a it's irrational. It's irrational lending, and that's the condition. And then you throw- that's the, is that our current condition? Are we uh, in a absolutely. condition of quadruple A credit and irrational? We lending? We have the cleanest mortgage product being created in the history of mortgages because lenders essentially, no matter what the the ads say on TV, that's the sales side. Right. The underwriting side is afraid of its own shadow, and part of that is because of. Uh, they're you know we're still under quantitative easing although that's right. changing but that basically rates are still very low rates four are very quarter, low the spread's a little tight right. but also also the economy is not robust we're not seeing real strong income growth or employment numbers you know when you really break it down so they're very conservative and that conservative is one thing. This is this. It, I is, think it's irrational. I think it, it's it's beyond. It's one step beyond conservative. It's th- irrational. These guys have have examined me so closely. My proctologist is jealous. So <laughs> they've asked for. They're looking for reasons not to lend to you. They so want they've no asked risk. for. They've asked for three years of personal tax documents. They've asked for three years of business tax documents. They've asked for six months of corporate and personal. Bank statements. And I, I'm happy to give them. Right. And every now and then they'll say, what's this round number we see on the 15th of each month? Well, it's either drug lords giving me money or a paycheck. You, right. w- Which would you guess? By the way, you have the corporate account and the, the personal math. account. You can match. Oh, you lost X here. You got X there. Do you think maybe that's a coincidence? Right. Or 
and some of the stuff and, it's called and to fishing be, it's really you know it's called fishing is essentially they're looking for any reason not to lend to you to be fair to wells fargo their staff has been phenomenal right they've given us this checklist and they warned us hey listen by the way this isn't a multi-million dollar mortgage this is barely more than the uh, a conforming mortgage a little more and the quite the hoops they've had us jump through the one house we looked at that was in danger of collapsing into the, oh, you saw that. Right, 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 right. Uh, would have been double the mortgage. And it, the process was more or less the same. Right. And this I'm like, you know, this house is going to tumble into the sea, right? This, it's the risk isn't me, it's it's gravity, it's right? You're aware estate. of that, right? So, <laughs> so, so, uh, so we submitted the last of the paperwork. They start processing it. And just before they submit it, they said, we have a question on your credit score. My credit score is okay. It's pretty good. My wife's credit score is phenomenal. And I said, well, what's the issue? You said I was above this cutoff. Well, over the past month, your credit score dropped six points or something. Uh, can you te- could you explain this thing? And I'm like, I, I look at this. I'm like, I don't know what BEC, what is this? So they have to translate it into English. And it turns out we hired two new people. We bought two new computers for them. Right. And this was the Apple financing. And I, and they said, oh, well, that affects your credit. I go, look, you guys see our balance in our checking account. We could have gone out and spent $3,000 on two new computers. Right. We could have done that 30 times over. But instead, the accountant said, hey, it's better for taxes to lease it than to buy. So we leased it for $135 a month. That's what caused a credit score on the owner of the company. The company leased this. Right. Uh, it was. And it, it was and it like wasn't an a insane, big change in the credit score. It, it was an insane. Yeah, but you go from whatever seven and something. But that's the, down seven points. That that's a percentage change. That's the quadruple A standard that everybody's being held to, and that's the challenge, and that's what's defining the housing market right now. That that is. So I'm surprised if that's the case. That. Any houses are getting so. You know, we're here in Bloomberg. I have a contract. I do. I do a column for Bloomberg View, and they said, you know, list all your sources of income. Well, here's what I get from speaking appearance. Here's what I get from our my day job, and here's what I get. And the from, drug lords from Washington Post, and here's what I get from Columbia, <laughs> and here's what I get from Bloomberg. And they're like, oh, well, is it looks like it's the same amount every month from Bloomberg. Well, yeah, I have a contract. Can you send us the contract? And I had to ask somebody here, hey, am I allowed to show this to – like, yeah, don't worry about it. But meanwhile, uh, you're asking for a, a contract. And it's going to be a 19-year-old in Ohio that's right. reviewing the document. Right. <laughs> it, it's a little more sophisticated than that, yeah. but not a whole lot more. And again, to be – look, I have been one of the biggest critics of banks since the financial crisis. To be fair to Wells Fargo, they have been – Really extremely professional, very proactive. They would give us, it started out with this massive list. I'm holding my arms six feet apart. And each week I would get an update with, okay, these three items have been collected. Now we're waiting for these things. Because to gather all this stuff up, to get a PL statement about two of the companies for the, now the accountants, they're not going to do an audit unless we want to pay a boatload of money for it. And it turns out the words review are a term of art that implies an audit-like level of scrutiny. So Wells Fargo asked for a review of the P&L, and the accountants turn around and say, 
These documents have been submitted in furtherance of federal tax filing. They appear to be in order to us. That's the most the accountants would. They wouldn't say we reviewed it. They certainly aren't going to say we ordered it. But apparently, submission in order to, of furtherance of tax filings was sufficient for Wells Fargo. Well, think think about that. Crazy, crazy So So you have that whole interplay between the consumer and the lender. And then you look at the fact that, you know, with the uptick in mortgage rates over the last year, the rates- Came back down. They came back down. But we're pretty close to the lows now, aren't we? Four we're and, still, I think we're a half a point up, but- Four some, and a quarter? Yeah. Were we ever really at 375 for very long? You were there for- A short, a short burst. We were there for 15 minutes and then it was right, back right. to four. I mean, that seems to be the floor. You don't, you're not going to break and, four. And you look at that, and and uh, which created a lot of, in many ways, sort of- on one hand, the spike in rates last year created this the the surge, the the last minute sort of gasp of air of getting mm-hmm. people off the fence, and now it's sort of framing the uh, the discussion about housing now, which is it's less than last year, but really it's not really from a historical context, it's no different. I mean, the right. rates are really nominally different. There's really no it, difference. But it, a four but, handle is still an insane but number. It, but it actually feels tighter or weaker and I, and it's all from the credit orientation that mm-hmm. is driving what housing So doing. we really didn't get to what the proper role of government is in this cuz what some of the arguments that are being made is you have rates at record lows but we have most of America unable to take advantage and refinance cuz either they lack the credit history the income history Amazingly, they're making payments on a house at 6%. Imagine if they could refi at 4%. And then what that, that would do, do for the, the economy. Yeah, that, would, that right. would be a huge, although you were effectively transferring some income from banks and giving it to everybody, uh, everybody else. But the question is, what's the proper role for government in all this? And if Fannie and Freddie are ultimately on the hook, why not? waive some of these requirements and allow refis because if they default at 6%, they're going to default at 4% and they're less likely to default at 4%. So why not let them do a refi? Right. I think I think the thinking right now, there's there's a lot of uncertainties about the former GSEs in terms of what their role is. They're going to merge them into one institution, but Congress doesn't have the 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 will to do that. What was There's, that word you were going to say? The the, the <laughs> will to do that is that uh, correct? Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, that <clears throat> the problem is that it is a one size fits all orientation in government in terms of terms of risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think part of it is the austerity concern, uh, or maybe that's window dressing on the problem, and so. They're, they're, we're not giving anybody credit to be able to make intelligent decisions. We're really just saying we're not doing this and let the chips fall where they may. And that's it's a it's a short sighted solution because, like you said, there's lots of people with plenty of income. Uh, they might be low on equity. And they don't qualify for a refi. And yet there's an existing mortgage at that low equity level. Exactly. Um, Another component has been, uh, and there's been discussion about it, is that uh, the whole concept of principal forgiveness, focusing on the 
the the borrowers instead of focusing on the making the banks whole, focus on Main Street, right? Which so would make the, the economy whole. Would make the economy whole, and then theoretically make banking whole. But we're sort of stuck in this this uh, box right now, which is. You know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac are making a ton of money. Mm-hmm. It's highly volatile. Mm-hmm. It's it could turn on a dime. Uh, we're still dealing with the legacy issues of bad lending practices. Right. DOJ going after everybody. We have uh, we have the buybacks being forced on the GSEs. We have Congress saying forced by the GSEs. Forced by the GSEs. Right. In other words, if you sold a pool of mortgages to Fannie or Freddie. And there was some sort of misrepresentation, fraud, whatever. It can be very slight. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, it. It's not just because we know there was a ton of fraud all around. Oh, there was there was application fraud. There was underwriting fraud. There was there somebody appraisal asked, fraud. There was you know liar loans. The whole deal because it was just it was just semantics <laughs> I, i've gotten into arguments with some of my conservative buddies about the liar loans yes. and my argument goes something like this you're the bank it's your capital you're lending it right you're the one who's taking the risk it's incumbent on you to make sure that the person you're lending it to has an income has pay a payment history has a credit score when you say don't tell me that what you're effectively saying is i don't, I don't care, care. So to blame the buyers for, you know, look, we all know the story, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, what was going on with mortgage brokers. Here, leave that blank. I'll fill it in. Right. I mean, people signed it and uh, holding aside the bad behavior of the, the mortgage folks, if you don't ask for a income history, tax file. Now, this is the opposite of, of the proctology exam I'm going through with Wells Fargo. If you ask for none of that, by the way, we refinanced the house we're selling, I don't know, two years ago. It was more than fog a mirror, but not a whole lot more. And the house we had sold before this, I, I think we refinanced that three times over right. the course I think of I've seven refined, years. I've been in my house for 10 years. I think every year, the first couple of years I had it, I I think I refied like four times. Yeah, it's and the process was sign here, initial here, checks in the mail. It was insane. Right. So whereas it's gone to one ridiculous extreme now, we started an opposite extreme, but I hold the banks responsible. If you don't ask people, what's your income? What's your credit score? What were your tax filings? What's your payment history? How could you complain when they default? You didn't ask for that information. Right. You didn't verify it. Hey, by the way, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, give us a ballpark of they your could income. Sell the, they could package and sell off the risk to somebody else. That's who, exactly right. Who was unsuspecting, although oh, no, they, 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 they knew. but they, they were more than unsuspecting. They were, look, we're taking this risk and spreading it out. One of my favorite discoveries when I was researching Bailout Nation was Great the book, warranty- uh, keep it fair. Keep it fair. <laughs> was the warranty that that came with these non-bank originated mortgages, primarily out of California, where where these yeah, shops Cal, were? Right, right. They gave a warranty that said this mortgage will not this thirty-year mortgage, this three hundred and sixty-month mortgage will not default for ninety days, and if it does, you can put it back to us. A toaster comes with a longer warranty than that. Right. So how long did it take for the salespeople to figure out, 
hey, I'm not looking for people who could qualify for a 30-year mortgage. I'm just looking for some poor schmuck who's going to make the first three payments. Right. And by the way, the first payment is effectively waived. It's covered at closing. Think about the- So two payments and I'm out in 90 days. Think of the irony of that, though. So during that period, mm-hmm. you had no credit standards whatsoever. Zero. Housing Less price, than zero. Housing prices rose rapidly. Right. Fast forward to today- Excess credit you tightness. Have, you, the pendulum has overcorrected. Mm-hmm. To the opposite degree, housing prices are rising and in many markets at a very brisk pace. Credit is in play in both cases, but for completely different reasons. So somewhere in the middle is the much healthier, slower growth, more reasonable housing market. And that doesn't happen until you get real job growth real income growth not a booming uh but but just you know the the whole notion that you actually have to have a job and have a reasonable income mm-hmm. to qualify when that when those conditions improve that's how you ease credit that's how you get housing to be truly what i call recovered all we've seen right now i characterize as it's a rebound it's essentially mm-hmm. off of a low right but there's Dead cap bounce or a little more than that? I think it's a little more than that um, because, you know, there's so much psychological- I love that phrase, by the I know, way. I know. We have, we have two cats. I'm not allowed to say that phrase at home. But, but you know, it, it, there is some psychology to it, people not being afraid to venture into the market and buy. Right. Uh, but the problem is that it's everything's going to happen in slow motion and we want quick, quick results. But that's not how the real world operates. No. You, you don't get that sort of stuff. So let's solve America's housing, credit, and economic problems all in one fell swoop. So here's what we're going to do. So we've noticed that Obama has essentially given up on Congress, who the day we're recording this we see in a Gallup poll is now down to a 7% right. a pro- record low since Gallup started asking this question in I think it was 1973. Record low. Not only is it the lowest Congress has ever been, it's the lowest any institution in America has ever, ever marked. And so, notable achievement. And so, Obama has very interestingly said, I'm going to take a page out of the George Bush playbook and bypass Congress. And there's a lot of stuff I can do through an executive order. And so, here's what I want to know. We, we know that there's a tremendous amount of economic activity and economic potential locked up in people who are, are stuck ah. in their houses. We also know that ultimately Fannie and Freddie, meaning the taxpayer, is on the hook for those mortgages, whether they default at 6% or default at a lower rate. What would happen if uh, the president said to the head of Fannie and Freddie, I want to institute a policy that allows people who are current on their mortgages, so we're not dealing with short sales, we're not dealing with underwater sales, to refinance at their existing mortgage amount or lower, so there's no cash outs, at the prevailing interest rate. I know in theory, this may reduce the income to Fannie and Freddie, although there will be all these transaction fees that'll help them. Absolutely. What is this? A, can we can the president order Fannie and Freddie to do that? And B, what would that do to the uh, to the U.S. economy and to the U.S. housing market? Well, uh, that's a sort with a of, caveat that you're not an economist. <laughs> I, I proudly say I'm a non-economist. 
Proudly. So the new uh, head of uh, FHFA, the the mm-hmm. regulatory agency that oversees Fannie and Freddie, that uh, was formerly called OHEO. OFEO, right. And uh, they were asleep at the switch. The whole uh, run. The whole Not run. A, worse than asleep at the switch, they're the ones who gave Fannie and F- the GSEs permission in late 2005, hey, you're losing market share to Wall Street, you don't have to just do conforming loans. You could do non-conforming, meaning subprime Absolutely. and alt A. And so 2006, Fannie and Freddie go headlong into that. Right. Just as the market is topping. Right. They might have been Timing the is final everything. spasm, and that was And that. actually, when they changed their name to FHFA, it literally was the same website, just with <laughs> different <laughs> URL, and uh, the logos, everything was the same. So I, I never quite understood that, and I, I sort of feel like the the rejiggering of Fannie and Freddie, if that were ever to happen, is going to be kind of the same thing. I, right. I, I, it, 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 it seems like a can of worms. But anyway, I think that- I think that you you take away income from Fannie and Freddie to give it to I think it's more I think it's more important for the public to be on their feet and spending in a consumer economy than it is about worrying about whether Fannie or or Freddie are going to make five hundred million dollars this quarter. Right. I, I think that's and ultimately that just comes back to the taxpayer. It comes back anyway. to the taxpayer anyway. So so I think that's important. We do have a the the head of the FHA FHFA is much more pro consumer in terms of their outlook and mm-hmm. providing some flexibility, trying to give flex, flexibility to Fannie and Freddie. So I think that's all good. I just I, I haven't heard any overtures that the Obama administration would even entertain that. Well, I haven't spoken to them yet, but once <laughs> I plant this idea. Well, I, I have full confidence that you could sell them on the idea. I don't know I, if I could sell it, but it's a fascinating concept. I think it's a I think it's probably a good concept because so much of our wealth is tied up uh people that are stuck, it's tied up in, in housing and I think that triggers a lot of other things. The the question- mobility, it, it triggers it triggers real estate mobility, employment mobility, yes. geographic mobility, that's a key thing. And I'm looking for the downside. There, I don't think there really is any downside, especially from the naysayers. If it was, if you were, t- if you were ignoring uh, a principal uh, reduction, mm-hmm. your principal reduction is sort of a hot hotbed right. uh, of of debate. I'm in favor let, of it. Let, let we could hold that to but the side. But if you put that to the side and don't even do that, right? Just the people who are current have. Employed who want to refi to a lower rate, and nothing else changes. Even it, it, you know, if you have a four hundred thousand dollar mortgage on a house that's worth three fifty, does it matter if the interest rate to to the note holder if it's six percent or four percent? It shouldn't make a difference. So the I, there are people who hold the securitized notes. They have to expect a certain amount of maturation that happens normally. Right. This is going to be a huge shift. Now, in theory, it creates a whole bunch of new paper that Wall Street can then move about and sell to these people. And if you want to hold on to whatever you have, you can hold it. The way this gets called is kind of complicated. Yeah, it's the, a the pushback will be from the investors that were right. expecting a six percent return, right. and now well, it's you know what? Four percent. I'm sorry that you're you're going to have to get a less of a return, like everybody but else. But you're probably reducing dramatically the default 
risk. That's right. That's the trade-off. You're getting a lower default risk because people can afford it, and you're you're helping the overall economy. Right. So I'm looking. I've been playing with this idea. I'm looking for a downside to it, and other than the fact that people hate government intervention, but you know, there's an article in the Times today by Neil Irwin. Yes. Talking about formerly of the Washington Post, talking about the import export uh, bank. And how certain people hate it because it's government in bed with big business. and But the reality is that's the nature of industry globally. It has to be. That, that's what's going Listen, if, if the European banks are subsidizing Airbus, how can the U.S. not allow Boeing to compete on the same pl- playing field? And if you don't do that, what ends up happening is they lose the battle all the big contracts right to airbus because it's subsidized the ironic thing is the jackasses who are opposed to this are delta airlines because by the way worst airline on the planet run by morons i can't begin to tell you how much i despise that airline my least favorite airline search the blog search results.com for it i hope you're not an advertiser you'll see i don't know and i don't care to tell you the truth (laughs) But here's the amazing thing. Delta opposes it because they say, oh, you're subsidizing Boeing sales to competitive um, carriers overseas, and that's not the government's role. Hey, morons, Neil Irwin points out, you guys were rescued in a government bailout. Of course. So just sit there and shut the hell up. And take it. Right. It's like, you know, oh, wait, so you got yours, and that's the end of it. Nobody of all the hypocritical things, I don't know if they're more hypocritical than they are a lousy airline, right. but those are your choices. Most hypocritical company in America, worst airline in America. Right. So that's uh, This message is brought to you by <laughs> Delta. Fly Delta and maybe you'll make it there. I just had a couple of really bad experiences with them. Other people disagree with me about Delta, but- um, I actually I, rarely I, fly it, so- I, I, I don't fly it anymore, and- I'll never forget, I was flying to Atlanta to give a speech. I got booked first class. And they do what a lot of legacy airlines do, which is when they don't have a full flight, they cancel it. And they roll you into the next flight. And I'm like, listen, I got to be somewhere at 6 o'clock tonight. I know your your cancellation was nonsense. So they give me, well, we'll get you on this plane. And they I go from 2A to 26B, which is the 26. The middle. In the, the middle the from, from at back by the bathroom. Yeah. And I'm like, I- I'm sorry. I-, I had a first class ticket. Why am I? And the woman says, well, A, you didn't have a first class ticket. You had a 6GY ticket. And B, uh, that's the only seat we, you know, that's all we have at this time. So I'm like, let me, ex- I just have to stop you there. I don't know what a 6GY is. When I went on to Delta.com, um, your choice is either first, first class. slash business class or economy. And there was like a $600 difference in, in price. So I don't know how what, what 6GY is or whatever the code was, but you give me two choices, business or coach. I pick business. Is there an empty business class seat? I would like to have it. And at that point, it's like I had to get down there. So I get on the flight to add insult to injury there's an empty seat in business. And then to make matters worse, when I call Delta to say, all right, I bought this ticket for whatever, uh, I, I'd like a refund of the difference. They proceeded to explain to me that they couldn't tell the difference in price. 
Let me stop you a sec. I work on, in finance. I could tell you the price of any of 10,000 stocks on any day for the last 100 years at any second of the day. Your own tickets. You can't tell me what the hell these are selling for. I bought it. You could see the day I bought it. What were you selling the coach tickets for? Right. Just refund me the difference. And I said, you know what? And they refused to do it. They actually sent me a certificate for $250, which when I went to use seven months later was Didn't expired. <laughs> so I said, you know, my penalty for this is one day I'm going to have a radio show. And on that radio show, I'm going to tell people I, I love Virgin American Airlines, even though the last trip back from San Francisco, the seat didn't work, the juice didn't work, at the, the power on the, right. the electrical didn't work, the, the TV didn't work, still better than Delta. <laughs> and um, anytime if I have to fly JetBlue, JetBlue is always, always fine. Good. I get to sit in the front at Virgin, and JetBlue, it doesn't matter. You sit, yeah, you ev the even, even more spaces, like 40 bucks. Right. That is the greatest air travel bang for the buck there is. Just those extra six inches by you make all the difference. It really, uh, it really does. So somehow, the poor people on a treadmill listening to this, like I thought we were talking <laughs> about we were real talking estate, about housing. This Ritholtz guy will not <laughs> shut up. So let's bring this back to housing and what this means going forward. Assume the government does nothing. What what is the uh, no major? How does this play out? Yeah, what happens with Fannie and Freddie? What should the role of government be? Right, and and what do we do with this? What how does housing manifest itself over the next couple of years? So I I think that uh, housing will follow the path of what the economy does. In other words, I think I think when we see real improvement in the economy, and and what what I mean by that is simply more job, real job growth. I think that that makes all the difference in the world and that'll start to melt the, the problem. A little wage increase as a well. A little wage increase, nothing mo you know, huge, just improvement. An uptick. Uh, an uptick. I think, to me, all that matters are the fundamentals. Uh, you know, this whole notion- That's crazy. This whole, That's no crazy this whole notion of like, <laughs> housing's gonna lead us out of this. No. I, I feel- it's just the opposite. It always has been the opposite. And but it's I, always stated as housing, you know, brings us out. It's always uh, the, the economic sort of interpretation of housing is always how we get out of a, you know, a weak period. And I, and I feel it's, it, I don't know how that, where that math comes from, but in it, my experience, it's, wrong. it's always backwards because you actually have to have a job and have, you know, income prospects. To, right. to qualify for a mortgage. So I feel it all goes hand in hand. The, on the on the more specific government aspect of it is that I don't think Congress has the will or the ability to make a sea change to what is responsible for 90% of the housing of of housing mortgages in the country. I think that would is just a disaster waiting to happen. Meaning meaning what should they be doing? I think they'll do nothing. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, so as opposed to w what would you want them to do? Uh, I think what I'd want them to do. So, so what I've found is, is uh, the, there has to be more awareness of sort of separation of church and state. In other words, for example, you know, the biggest culprits, one of the biggest culprits in this whole last 
down cycle were the rating agencies, mm -hmm. right? Where they are basically joined at the hip with the people that that you know under it. They, they were. They were more partners with underwriters right. than Just credible like analysts. Real estate appraisers were joined at the hip with mortgage brokers, right? right? Find the right appraiser, make the number, we can do the deal, right? <laughs> we have that whole, and then we have the revolving door between the regulators and private industry. So there's no real separation. And to me, the only way you reduce the, you'll never eliminate it because- Human beings are really good at screwing things up. Just everything sort of devolves into chaos over time. I think you're trying to reduce it. What Dodd-Frank does the wrong, sort of takes the wrong approach is let's regulate what happened in the past. And I But that's always true. Isn't every regulation backwards looking by definition? Absolutely. You know, it's amazing how well the formation of the SEC and, and Glass-Steagall worked from the 30s because it was backwards looking but it was also when the pace of change was so slow. slow. It was good for 75 years. Well, that's now, whatever you pass has got like well, an 18 That's part of my window. problem with this whole notion of revamping Fannie and Freddie. When Fannie worked okay from the Depression up until- 05. Right, up until 10 years ago. Right, And so you have to look at what changed in 05, the middle right. of the last decade, to make them implode and then eliminate that. That's the- we don't just because you put window, you know, new window dressing on an agency that's effectively going to do the same thing doesn't make the problems go away. Right. It's a waste of time. You know, the Fannie and Freddie bashers always conflate two or three issues. Right. One is Fannie and Freddie was a horrifically corrupt organization who spread a lot of lucre around DC. So uh, you they start were the out biggest supporters of public relations agencies, every agency in Washington had a Fannie Mae account. They they were dominating. They spread the money out. Franklin right. Raines was not afraid to spend the cash. Right. And it was funny. It was his expert accounting. It was it was funny <laughs> that I remember seeing guys like Newt Gingrich com not complain about them. And then you find out years later, even though everybody thinks of Fannie and Freddie as a democratic entity, they were spreading the money around on both sides of the aisle, Absolutely. which is the smart way to do it. One of the good parts about the bailout is that we stopped all that lobbying, at least for Fannie and Freddie. We could have done it for the banks and for Wall Street. We'd be a much healthier country. Nobody thought to to say, hey, Goldman and Bank of America shouldn't really be uh, in the corridors of power as much as Fannie and Freddie were. Right. Stop them both. But, but hold that aside. Do we need an entity between the buyers and the banks working either with or with the imprimatur of government to keep mortgage rates down? We, we've we seen Europeans don't have this, although they also don't have 30-year fixed mortgages. Right. How is this done around the world? We'll make this our last question. How are other mortgages processed, underwritten, regulated elsewhere – that might provide an alternative example versus what Fannie and Freddie does. Well, so what's popular around the world are adjustable rate mortgages. I mean, that's which that, is that, not popular that, here. That, that dominates. Uh, I think many countries look at us as. This so it makes homeowners slaves to interest rate fluctuations. Very much so. And then on top of it, so countries like Spain, mm -hmm. where you can't walk away from a mortgage ever, ever. 
So leave you, the country. You are tied to that, right? And you have to pay it back. There is no, there is no get out of jail free card in in the mortgage world in in countries like Spain. Wow, that's amazing. In the U.S., isn't half the in U.S. US it's a in the U.S. it's basically just a. You know, it's just another process you go through. It's no big deal. But there are some states that are recourse states, meaning yes. that that it's a debt you could discharge in bankruptcy, yes. but you can't just walk away. And then there are non-recourse states where the the state the contract says, in the event that you fail to pay for the house, the bank gets the house, you're done. Which right. was always thought of as, oh, okay, I'm not making the payments, I lose the house. That was thought of as a kind of fair trade off. Nobody expected a million people to do it at once. Right. An inundation right. of it. Right. Yeah. The states that are dependent on the court systems were the slowest to recover. Florida had a, a their own, you know, hyper. Right. To try to- which, by the way, supposedly was a debacle, a, a gnarly mess of corruption and lack of oversight. That in and of itself, I'm sure there's a book in that for whoever oh, sure. wants to sift through it. So, so really, the countries that don't have GSEs in the middle- the alternative is fluctuating rates. You don't fluctuating know what your rates. monthly it's payments a, it's a are. It's a different perspective. You know, I'm uh, as you said, I'm not an economist, and I and and there's a lot of criticism about the the effort that it takes to to manage a 30 year mortgage, and we mm-hmm. shouldn't be doing that. Uh, and and uh, but it works so well for so long. Exactly. So my so my view of that is, you know, we're we're you know we're questioning home ownership. We're questioning. Uh, Fannie Mae, and we're questioning 30-year fix, yet they worked really well until about 10 years ago. Right. So why don't we look at what happened 10 years ago and focus on that? So that was subprime, that was liar loans, that was mass securitization, that was a lack of rating agency accountability. There were a lot of factors that caused a functional system to freeze, choke, and spit everything out all at once. So, you, so, so then, my, then you so, like then you think there's a place for the GSEs. I think there's a place. I don't. I I the way I look at it is fundamentals of the economy get back on track. All, all most of this stuff goes away. It's just a long, gradual process. I fear that by embedding even more layers of re- remember all the regulators were asleep at the switch. Right. Everyone, Sheila Bear may be one of the few exceptions. I, I and the same with the woman who was the head of the uh, Commodities Futures Trading. She actually was, yeah, she was soundly ignored by Greenspan. She was chastised by she, Rubin she, and and Greenspan. Absolutely. So I I agree. Sheila Bear and and uh, I can't recall the woman's name, but I saw Brooksley Bourne. Is that right? It. That's it. And and they were the ones that sort of the voice of reason. But the balance was they're caught up in it, too. And, they, and a lot of it, they didn't understand it. The and rest of the, the Wall Street didn't understand it either. Right. You know, the, all the, the, you know, the financial engineering. When it, so I don't think the answer is add more. You made the basket. I don't think no it, way. I don't think wow. adding more solves anything. I think right. it's let's get back to like fixing the economy first. And a lot of this stuff plays out. It's not that I, we're going in the right direction. It's just a slow motion, slow, slow motion ride. So as the economy goes, so goes real estate. Absolutely. Jonathan, I've had you here for two hours. Thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure uh, too, Barry. You know, you and I talk about this stuff all the time, but it's rare when we actually get to sit down for an uninterrupted, meandering conversation about- I thought the airline discussion was really important, though. God, <laughs> let me tell you something. 
it doesn't take much to set me off. I, I'm I'm getting better though. I'm you... I'm much more present. I read a fascinating study the other day that essentially said the cathartic release of anger does nothing to. Some people say, "Ah, oh, you get it out of your system." It turns out they've done studies, and people it manifests who, it. It 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 becomes persistent and higher when you, especially when you're driving. Um, so really, I'm trying to learn how to let these slights go and find a degree of peace. <laughs> I forgive Delta Airlines for their gross incompetence. And I choose to use my flight. You have, we know you have choices in airlines today. Hell yeah. And that's why I, I could at least get over my cost with uh, with Delta and, and gratefully fly. Virgin well, they're ready when you are. Lou. So uh, They apparently weren't. That's. The- <laughs> You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. 